All right, good morning, everyone. Good to be here with you online. And we're going to continue in a series we started last week entitled How to Pray, tracking along with a book by an author named Pete Grieg. If you got the book last week, you get an extra gold star. And last week, we issued an invitation to you um, to participate in this form of prayer called intercessory prayer. And my question to you is, how did it go? <laughs> how, how did it go last week? How you doing out there? It's been a pretty um, intense week of ups and downs and roller coasters and twists and turns as we um, go through this election season and how did it go in this call to prayer? This, this past Tuesday, I had the great opportunity to go up to a prayer retreat center in Sierra Madre. And I went there with my friend Andrew Eagle from Beverly, Hale, Beverly Hills Presbyterian Church. We decided to spend the day in prayer, walking around this a retreat center called, uh, it's a passionist retreat center called Dolorosa, and one of the things that it features is a massive walk through stations of the cross, and as we began to explore the grounds, the first thing that I ran into was this beautiful statue of Jesus in prayer and I began to realize that it was Jesus, a depiction of Jesus in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane because you could see over just a little ways off, there was Peter and some disciples. But there was Jesus, and he had assumed a prayer posture where he was on his knees and he was lifting his hands like this to heaven. And it got me thinking about prayer posture because it was this beautiful display of probably how Jesus' prayer posture would have looked. You know, we have a prayer posture of clenched fists or praying hands and closed eyes, and that's really a custom that we came up with. It's a more modern custom, probably over the last 100 years. Some pastor thought it would a good, be a good idea for everybody to close their eyes and focus in and listen to the words and Closing your eyes and folding your hands is a way probably to get rid of distractions. But it is slightly different or, the, or maybe significantly different than a posture of being on your knees and lifting your hands to heaven like this in openness. You know, the way that we posture ourselves as people can affect in our whole body um, the message that we are portraying and the one that we're receiving when Jesus was praying to lift his hands in this way was to, and to bend his knee was to say, I bend myself to the will of my Father and I open my hands to receive from him all that he would have for me. That is one prayer posture that I saw this week, a response in a call to prayer. Another I saw was as I continued, I mentioned the disciples over in the corner, and they were also displayed um, in a beautiful statue, but 
it was actually of Peter, and he was a bit off from Jesus, and he was asleep, and he had a massive sword that he was sleeping with as Jesus was praying. You remember the story in the garden that he had fallen asleep even though Jesus had asked him to stay awake and keep watch and to pray through the night with him. And I ask you the question again, which prayer posture did you assume? Sometimes we feel a little bit more like Peter, don't we, where we just want to be asleep with a big sword. Just in case anything happens, we'll take care of it with our big sword. Instead of this posture of wanting to receive whatever God would have for us. The theologian Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, That's a way of talking about how when things go wrong, the plans go out the window. And so that's why I've been encouraging you time and time again to find an intentional time and an intentional place to set a prayer practice and discipline. We might not need the discipline every day, but when things get tough, if we're not in a routine, chances are we'll lose the plan and lose the direction we want to go, and we will um, end up in places we don't want to be. So my encouragement again this morning is to stay in this rhythm of prayer, to find intentional time, set reminders on your phone. If you want to challenge yourself, Pray the hours. That means pray in the morning when you wake up or sometime early in the morning. Then pray at noon and then pray again in the evening time. That's a normal prayer rhythm um, that many many Christians have adopted over many seasons and generations of the church. For me, I like to read scripture and pray in the morning. I like to just at noon, do a quick Lord's Prayer usually. Um, no matter where I am, just say the Lord's Prayer internally. And then at night, I've been trying to pray the Prayer of Examine, as I mentioned, which is a five to ten minute prayer where you review with God your day, the things you did well, the things that you want to do better with God, and then you invite God to help you to plan the next day and what He would have for you. Those are just suggestions. There is no requirement when it comes to prayer. In fact, if you feel praying out of a pure sense of obligation, I recommend that you stop, recalibrate, and remember that prayer is grace and that prayer is something that God desires, but it is only out of an easy yoke that he offers, that he invites you to pray. And an experiment that if you would take him up on that, you would find that your days become lighter and easier with him. I'm going to pray a prayer this morning out of the theme of connectedness. How God, through prayer, connects us to him, connects us to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also connects us to one another through prayer. So I'm going to pray and ask God to be with us, and then we'll go to the scripture. Lord Jesus, um, we just pray that uh, you would uh, intercede for us, um, that you would um, 
hear our hearts and know um, our struggles in this time and um, that, that we would come to ask and seek and knock um, for, to discover what you would have. Connect us to you. Pour your spirit out on us, Lord, um, as we posture ourselves in humility, saying we do not have all the answers. We come poor in spirit in search of knowing you, in search of all that you would have for us. And Lord, teach us through this text um, what you desire for us um, in prayer and bring us uh, together as one, as your disciples and as your people. Your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. John 17, starting at verse 6, says this. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. This is Jesus praying and the disciples are listening in. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they might have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified." want to speak for a moment directly to those who would identify themselves as part of the Christian community that would say that they are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you're listening and you don't identify that way, then you're invited to just listen in for a moment. We're going to have a little in-house discussion because Jesus talked to, uh, prayed specifically in the section we just did for his disciples, those who had come to know him, those who had just received this long teaching, and now he's praying for their protection, for their sanctification, that they would have joy, and also that they would participate in the unity that Jesus had with the Holy Spirit and with his heavenly Father, this divine communion that is passed on by the Trinity 
And now he's saying, would you, Heavenly Father, join these disciples, the ones that he was preparing and is getting ready to leave, into this community, this communal community, this community of mutual love and connection. This is Jesus' final prayer on earth before he goes to the cross in the Gospel of John, and it's called the High Priestly Prayer that Jesus prays. I want to ask this morning, how is the Christian community, those who identify as disciples, how are we doing with Jesus' prayer here of unity? And how do we stay connected to a God that we do not fully understand? And how do we stay connected to people that we do not always agree with? The New Testament is full of churches that have disagreements, especially in the uh, Pauline epistles. And it is there that we see these teachings that Paul gives out of this urgent uh, desire for him to help to solve whatever conflict is going on so that the church can really be the church that God wants it to be. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is a great example of this. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I love that. Worthy of the calling by which you have been called. So the way that Christians are to conduct themselves is a calling again into the thing that they've already been called to, meaning that they were called to something, but at the moment they're not yet living into the manner worthy of that calling. And then he goes on to describe the manner by which Christians should conduct themselves within the church with other Christians, with other disciples. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is only one body and one Spirit, Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This oneness is so precious to God. And he desires this oneness as a high priority list. We see the emphasis here, right? We see we've been called in baptism, um, in everything, in and through all things, in our hopes. All of this is, we've been called into the church out of this oneness, this desire for unity. And so how then, I want to ask, do we hold that as a value? Jesus praised this for his disciples as one of the last things that he desires for them to receive before he leaves on earth. How do we hold that in our list of values as Christians? 
How do we deal with just a general priority list? I was thinking about this this week. You know, obviously we have a very divided country when it comes to um, politics. Very divided, very divided right down the middle. We've all seen it and we've all been scrolling to figure out how it's all going to resolve. And I'm coming to you on Thursday and it hasn't resolved yet, but my message however it would resolve, is the same. Which is, would you come and look at the priority lists of your life and to check them with whatever your political affiliation is? You see, most Christians would have a list, especially if you have children that might go like this. But if you have family in any form, it should look like God. Then if you're married, your spouse... And if you have children, your children, then after that, your occupation in life, and then after that, ministry. And so, those major values of your life should be at the top of your priority list. Unity with the Spirit is the top of the priority list for the church, and that also relates to how you deal with God. Now, this might be an oversimplification of our priorities, but I just want us to pause, take a beat, and to think about how we hold our political affiliations. Of course, we travel in an imperfect world, and we are imperfect beings, and our politics are imperfect. I think we'd all be okay with saying that. And so as we make our lists of the things that we're willing to fight for, to die for, and to um, separate our, with our family over, we just need to pause and to think, how does that fit with what I just read to you from Ephesians? How do we hold our convictions? We may have those convictions and feel very strong about them, and that's great. But also, the way as Christians we hold them should look differently. No matter what those are, they should all look like humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain unity. That's what communion is about. Communion as a sacrament is important for the church because it gives us a way that we can say, even though we're bound to disagree at times, that we come together to the table to receive what Jesus would have in humility, all to partake in his unifying gift of body poor I mean of body broken and blood poured out. The Moravians who I spoke to you last week had this wonderful way of gathering themselves. This group of people who had fought um, because they had different um, religious convictions in the Protestant movement and they were uh, refugees, um, under, living under this rich guy who was also a passionate Christian in the 18th century called Count Zizendorf, and he went to each one of their houses because they were all fighting and it was a disaster on his property. He invited them to communion. They came together over this invitation, and as they took communion, the Holy Spirit descended on them, and as the Holy Spirit descended on them, 
they began an unbroken prayer movement for the next 100 years. And they started a thing called the Order of the Mustard Seed, where they had these basic commitments to fidelity, to being kind, and to going to preach the gospel across the globe. And one of those missionaries who took that commitment was there for John Wesley in a prayer room where they prayed and that same Holy Spirit descended on John Wesley and he brought forth a great awakening and a revival in that time in world history. And their response out of this unity that they discovered, even amidst their diversity in different uh, um, practices in their Christian faith took on this motto. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. And the way we hold our convictions and our belief I believe, needs to be tagged in the same way in this season now more than ever. In all things love, do you see how in this, uh, this exhortation from Paul, he says that in all things, in and through all things, is the oneness of God. This love throws, goes in and through all things, and you might say, well, okay, but I'm not feeling the love right now. Right? I, I have some major serious disagreements. And uh, w- one story I, I might I share with you anecdotally in this is that uh, over, over a season, uh, my neighbor and I have realized that we have some different political uh, opinions. Um, as a pastor, I try to stay fairly guarded with those political opinions, but um, he's very overt and passionate about his, and so I've learned all about what his political opinions are. And um, so we've been challenged by that at different times, and, um, and so uh, we try and stay in relationships, sometimes better than others. But the other night, um, I was giving a bath to my son when all of a sudden I hear this weird noise coming out of the toilet. And... It's, it's just kind of like hor- one of those horrifying noises where it sounds like water is starting to flow out of the toilet. And it had sprung a leak in one of the pipes. And I didn't really know what was going on, so I go get my wife. And, of course, I am just miserable with all this type of stuff. So all of the you know, manly men out there or the handy women out there who would have known what to do, I commend you. But, of course, panic took over in my household My son starts to freak out. My wife doesn't really know what to do, although she knows more than I do. But she did figure out the right thing to do, which was to go to my next-door neighbor's house to knock on his door and to ask him to come help us. And so she did that as I was scrambling in the backyard to figure out how to turn the water off. And he came in. He fixed it in about two seconds. And in that moment, one of the thoughts I had was, I don't really care what his political affiliations are in this moment. I'm so glad that he he is my neighbor. Um, Unity has the gift of reminding us that we need each other. Um, and, And God made us to be in community with each other. And prayer is the place where we realize 
that God gives us the power to be in relationship with people that we wouldn't otherwise be able to be in relationship with. And this is actually a strengthening of the Christian community, is that we discover together that we are stronger through unity, through our ability to work through our differences, embrace our differences, and understand that God is calling us forth as an example of a community of people that represent what he desires for the world. Okay, so remember this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. One of my favorite illustrations for the power of unity and the benefit of disciples deciding to stick it out and be in unity with one another is redwood trees. I love, uh, if you've ever been up to the redwoods, you know this is a unique California experience. These redwoods only grow in Northern California in this one place that we have access to. And they are the tallest trees, 300 feet or more, in all of the world. It's the tallest pine tree at 268 feet is smaller than these 300-foot redwood trees. And how do they grow so large? You know, they actually don't go that deep. It's only 6 to 12 feet underground. But they have this root system that goes hundreds of feet out, and they overlap each other. The redwood trees' root system overlap for each other in a garden of redwood trees. And so it's actually by their roots coming together and growing in and through and binding together in this network that the trees are actually able to grow for years and years and higher and higher and higher. This is what God desires for the Christian community. He desires for his disciples, those in the house, to walk in a humility that creates this root system that fortifies us through unity, saying, I know where you stand, you know where I stand on some of the peripherals, but we're going to major in the majors. One of those is just simply a commitment to ask God about politics and what's going on in the world and to receive from his word the posture that we are called to. I'm going to keep reading because now Jesus is not just going to pray for the disciples, but he's going to pray for all people, for all believers. It says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be where I am. And to see my glory, and the glory you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, 
and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus just prayed that he would be in us, all believers. And did you catch what is going to make the world understand who Jesus is? How people are going to come to know Christ? They're going to come to know Christ through seeing the unity of the disciples, through seeing this network of redwood trees, to seeing the health and sustainability of a Christian community at its best. The way that people become Christian is when Christians get together in unity. I recently was talking to a pastor of a church that had a season where it grew really large, and I asked him a, a you know, pertinent question, I thought, which was, how did your church get so big in such a short amount of time? This is a church somewhere um, out in the valley. And he said that the reason our church got big was because our church was the cool church. And so Christians from other churches would come and they began to fill up our church and empty the churches around. I would say that the South Bay also has this people shuffling, this Christian shuffling that takes place. It's part of our culture, our Christian culture is if we have a problem with a particular church, we feel tempted to not work out that problem with that church, but to go and move on to the next church. Or maybe there's a church that has a better preacher or has a cooler ministry or more relevant or doing the thing that you like. And so we go fill that church up for a while and that church becomes the big church. Well, in that scenario, everybody is still not getting to what Jesus wants for the church, which is for the church in many different denominations um, and expressions to come together, to work together, to fortify, so that people that aren't in a church yet would come to be Christians. Not only that, that's the way the world would understand that God sent Jesus into the world is by our unity. Thomas Kelly describes praying for unity in this way. He says, we are torn loose from earthly attachments and ambitions, contemptus mundi, and we are quickened to a divine but painful concern for the world. Amor mundi. He plucks the world out of our hearts, loosening the chains of attachment, and he hurls the world into our hearts where we and he together can carry it in infinitely tender love. Did you see that? How through prayer we can detach ourselves from the values of the world, from all the chaos of the world we find that we can detach and reattach ourselves to our Heavenly Father. But then as we do that, then God himself actually hurls the world 
and the concerns of the world back into our hearts, but we can hold them together with God, and we can hold them together in a new way, a new posture with tender love. And so we should be very concerned for our world, but we hold that with God in a new way, in a way that prizes unity. And those who are our enemy then, we still pray for. Those who um, have done violence to us, we still pray for. Out of this desire that justice, which is necessary in great violation and boundaries, which is necessary, would ultimately give way to reconciliation, repentance, And so we pray, we're taught to pray the Lord's Prayer, and we ask, Lord, would you give us your, would you forgive our debts? In essence, that would you give us your mercy? Would you give us this undeserving love? And by giving us that, Lord, by forgiving our debts, in a way we could never earn, We are reminded in this posture, in this connectedness with God that because we've been forgiven this debt we can never repay, that those who are violating us and we're keeping a record of wrongs with, in fact, give way to the deeper truth that we've already been forgiven as well, and so we're more like them than not. And they, oftentimes evil made manifest needs to be challenged with the truth or those who seek to do injury should be stopped. But also they should be prayed for as God breaks our heart to see them return back into what he designed and what he desired for their lives. These are not easy things to do, but they are the heart of God who forgave us when we were enemies of him by going to the cross. I love this little final illustration. This is from the book of Ezekiel in a time where uh, the uh, nation of Israel was deeply divided. And so God gave the prophet Ezekiel this uh, prophetic demonstration to do. He says this, Son of man, take a stick and ride on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and ride on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them one to another in one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in Ephraim, and put it together with the stick of Judah so that they may be one. This is the heart of God. Paul David Tripp says, The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and to learn to love others as he designed. I pray that that would be our form of church here at St. Andrews. And I pray that 
God's unity would be in our midst made manifest so that the kingdom of God can march forward with the strength that it deserves and the attention that it deserves. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that um, you would be with us in practical matters, Lord, that you, your will would be done in this election and also that your will would be done in our lives that you would show us how to be your hands and feet and how to love sacrificially and how to take every twist and turn on this road um, with courage and with a heart of prayer and a desire to be with you no matter what. You are our prize, and in that we find joy. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.